Uninvisible is a support podcast that deals squarely with medical issues that present unique advocacy issues for individuals. We do not provide medical advice. Please consult with your physician for any medical issue that you are facing. Information and comments that you send to us are governed by our terms of service and privacy policy which are available on our website located at uninvisiblepod.com. The opinions expressed by guests are their own and are not necessarily the opinion of Uninvisible or the show sponsors. Any advertising that you may hear is accepted without regard to our editorial content. Welcome to Uninvisible. I'm your host, Lauren Friedman. And I'm here with my guests to bring you info, insights, and inspiration for coping with, diagnosing, and treating invisible illness. We're here oversharing, so you don't have to struggle with invisibility anymore. Okay, guys, thank you so much for joining us. I am here today with an amazing young advocate who is still a college student, the founder of Health Advocacy Summit, and uh, who also lives with invisible illnesses herself, Sneha Dave. Sneha, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks so much. I'm really excited. It's an absolute pleasure to have you, and I'm excited for our listeners to learn more about Health Advocacy Summit. So let's start at the very beginning, though, about you. Why don't you tell us when and how you first realized that you had something going on physically. You were pretty young, right? Yeah. So I, um, I was about five or six years old and, um, I started having a lot of diarrhea. Um, I had a lot of, um, you know, blood in my stool, the very typical symptoms of what I would be diagnosed with later on, which is ulcerative colitis. So, um, Around when I was about six years old, I was given the formal diagnosis of ulcerative colitis. And throughout elementary school, um, I was kind of put on a lot of steroids and I had a lot of um, different sort of treatment options. I was constantly trying to keep my weight up. Um, My weight was always an issue for me, just trying to um, be as healthy as possible and have enough nutrients um, in my body. But my, uh, during middle school, um, during sixth grade, for the first time, um, I had my a huge, huge flare up that mm-hmm. that kind of lasted until the middle of of high school. And so during that time, I um, you know used to restroom use the restroom sometimes up to twenty times a day, mm-hmm. and I was on numerous pills. Um, I did partial schooling, of course, at this time because I was not healthy enough to go to school um, full time. Sure, and. Um, yeah, and so I, you know, I got really weak to the point where, you know, my mom had to help me walk up the stairs by myself. And I used to be really, really active as a kid. Um, but then as soon as middle school hit, that's kind of when everything became considerably more severe. Um, and then during my freshman year of high school, I weighed about 60 pounds. Wow. And um, I used to go to the hospital every week to get infusions. And then I had the full colectomy surgery during um, the middle of my freshman year of college. And um, since then, I've had multiple other surgeries, and I now live with a J pouch. Mm-hmm. And um, unfortunately, I, I, I have chronic antibiotic refractory pouchitis, which is, um, which is something that 
obviously cannot be treated by antibiotics. And now I'm on a host of, of biologics and I'm, and I'm still looking for a viable treatment option. Wow. Now for our listeners who are tuning in and are like, what's a J pouch? What's a colectomy? Can you tell us, um, give us the basics on what those, what that means and, and how that affects your lifestyle? Yeah, definitely. So uh, colectomy surgery is basically when you get your entire large intestine removed. Um, at least that was the case for me. Some people just get, you know, part of their, their colon removed. Um, but, but I had to get my entire colon removed due to scar, scar tissue um, and whatnot. And then um, they typically build an ostomy bag. So after your first surgery, so if you're not familiar with an ostomy, it's basically when a piece of your intestine sticks out of your stomach and you um, you evacuate waste. It's a nice way from, to put it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We can yeah. talk about poop on this show. This is what we get yeah. into. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. No, no, no. That's, that's what it is. Um, yep. So, yeah, you basically just poop from your stomach. Mm-hmm. Um and which is hey guys that's where everyone poops from yeah (laughs) fyi (laughs) (laughs) you might not have an ostomy bag but you poop from your stomach yeah internally yeah yeah no that's really funny and i think you know as a as a high schooler at that time i was like what is this system and and Mm. it and you know i would go to i would have a lot of leakages with my ostomy so i would go to the nurse often and and she'd give me like this huge bathroom to to change my ostomy in um because that kind of happened frequently when I had started going back into class. Um, but a J pouch, just to go back to your original question, is basically when they build your small intestine into the shape of a J. And I'm not too sure of the exact biology of that, but uh-huh, of um, but now I don't have an ostomy bag and I kind of, I just poop normally, so. <laughs> That's great. So you didn't end up having to live permanently with an ostomy bag because yeah. of the J pouch. Yes. Yeah. And I'm very, very grateful. I've, um, I've had a, I've, I've had a great, um, well, relatively a great time with my J pouch. So. Right now has this also, I mean, it sounds like you were running to the nurse's office, like having leakages. How did that affect your social life as a kid too, like at that awkward age, right? Yeah. Yeah. Sort of coming into your own and here you are having to worry about poop problems, basically, you know, did that affect your development socially, you know, and sort of affect you negatively at all? Yeah, definitely. And I think it took me a couple of years to realize how difficult it was for me at that time to make social connections. I mean, first of all, I was barely at school, so that did not help at all. But second of all, you know, having to explain um, ulcerative colitis or inflammatory bowel diseases in general is a little different than other conditions because um, it can often be very, very tricky to talk about with younger people without them feeling uncomfortable or them kind of um, you know, wanting to step away from the conversation. And so I think yeah. it was really hard because I was not able to explain my condition. And I didn't at that time feel confident enough to be able to tell people that, you know, I have to use the restroom a lot and I have a lot of accidents. Um, but it wasn't until, you know, the last few years that I've really been able to open up and be complete, completely kind of confident in sharing about the impact of IBD and, you know, the number of people that are diagnosed and, um, you know, the, the holistic aspects of IBD, you know, that it's not just a bathroom disease, but that there's so many other factors that come with it. Absolutely. And it's pretty amazing because you obviously went from probably quite a fearful kid, right? Like trying to figure things out to now being an advocate across the country and 
perhaps even internationally, right? So um, we're going to get into that. But before we get into your advocacy work, I was wondering if at any point along this this journey to getting your J pouch and sort of figuring out what was going to work for you in terms of lifestyle, whether you needed a personal advocate at any point, because obviously you've become your own advocate, you help advocate for others, but did you have someone with you in your appointments trying to help you figure things out while you were working through all of this? Yeah, yeah, that's that's definitely actually, um, especially when I was six years old, that's when I yeah. had, you know, I have an incredible, incredible support system. I have my mom, my dad, and my older sister, who's actually, my older sister Priya is actually in medical school now. Um, she's a second year medical student at Mount Sinai and I'm really pushing for her to go into GI, but, um, (laughs) yeah, she's been a really, really incredible, um, just sister having someone to be able to talk to about like just my anxiety levels and my stress when, when it comes with my illness. But, um, I think most of all, my mom and my dad, especially my mom, um, were the best personal advocates. I mean, my mom, especially when I was young, would figure out all the insurance stuff. Um, and my dad too was, was incredibly supportive, but my mom would be the one to help me go and, and, um, initiate 504 plan meetings. Um, and for those of you who don't know what 504 plans are, it's basically accommodations that are required in the U S for, um, high school students to get if they have a chronic illness. Um, and so my mom was kind of huge in, in, in advocacy, not only at these doctor's appointments and such, but also, um, you know, in the school system and um, even socially, she, she helped a lot as well. So. That's really wonderful. And so you've maintained a close relationship with her and it sounds like you guys have gotten closer because of yeah. this. Yeah, definitely. Absolutely. That's really lovely to hear. And it's really wonderful because you're not the first person to talk about, you know, their mom being a a really wonderful advocate for them. And it's great to hear that like these illnesses haven't torn families apart. They've actually brought them together in beautiful ways. So what about management day to day? What does that look like for you? Can you give us like, I mean, the, the gory details, if you will, what does it look like as you're managing having to go to the bathroom and, and your diet and exercise lifestyle, everything like how do you make it work? Yeah, so I think the biggest thing for me is that um, my pouchitis comes in phases. So, you know, for a couple months, I can feel very normal and I can feel like I can do everything. And then for the next few months, I can be completely sick and kind of um, have a complete lifestyle shift. And I think it's especially hard right now when I'm in college and there's already a lot of transition going on um, to have that uncertainty. Um, but at least for the past, I'll just give you a snapshot of the past few months. Um, yeah. So I was actually on an um, infusion, and that infusion ended up causing my eosinophil count to rocket up, which I'm not too sure. I'm not going to say like the scientifics of that, but basically it caused a lot of wheezing and really um, um, difficulty in in my breathing. And so I was up, you know, for like. I would wake up every couple of hours just starting to wheeze and the next morning I'd have to go to class at 8 a.m. And it's hard to explain to your professor that these things are going on when it happens almost every single day. Um, and so you just end up going to class and kind of having to tough it out in, in some for some classes. Um, but I think other than that, just day to day, you know, I always time when I use the restroom, I always try to go right before class starts, 10 minutes before class starts. 
Um, and then I think in terms of like exercise, so exercise has been really, really important in my life um, personally and something that I try to keep consistent even when I'm in a really severe flare up. So I'm really into, um, I'm really into climbing and I love high altitude stuff. Um, and so typically on Mondays and Wednesdays, no matter how I'm feeling and no matter how much I think I'll be able to do, I always make an effort to go, um, bouldering at my rock climbing gym. Um, and it's like some days are completely, I feel great. And then other days I can barely like get up, get up the wall without having to have like a asthma attack. Um, <laughs> but it's still something that I've, I've made a commitment to. And I think it's really important even when you are feeling down to just at least try, um, try with your chronic illness to, to exercise. I think that's really wonderful. So it, it sounds like, you know, you're timing things, but you know, you were mentioning that like with some classes, you, you have to create accommodations and stuff. So are you communicating with your professors and with professionals around you and saying like, Hey, this is me might have to get, yeah. you know, accommodations for this kind of situation? Yeah, definitely. So I'm registered with the disability student services at my college, which is Indiana University. Um, however, it's really hard with some professors to be able to get adequate accommodations with them because, you know, some of the classes that I'm in are um, are in the hard sciences. So those professors tend to be a little bit less accommodating than, say, my anthropology professors or my journalism professors. Mm. So um I think that's that's a tough thing. And it's not only the fact that you have accommodations, it's often the courage to be able to go up and ask about them, which I think is a really Absolutely. tough, yeah, it's a really, really tough part because, um, I mean, you know, whether it's right or wrong, you never want to feel like you're the student that's trying to ask for um, like extra accommodations, even though you actually do need them. Um, so I think that's one thing to consider with anything, even mm. like asking for workplace accommodations is that you have those rights, but sometimes it's just having the courage to be able to talk about it, which is the biggest barrier often, I think. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And I, it's interesting, um, you know, this idea of communication as well, because if there are going to be professors who are going to make it more difficult for you to actually create accommodations that you need, um, I mean, that that says something about people's tolerance levels and needing to be more open to these kinds right. of discussions, doesn't it? Right. Absolutely. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. So um, in terms of finding balance for yourself as well, how are you managing? I mean, you're timing things out. Like this is stuff that you have to be aware of all the time. Does it cause you anxiety or have you learned ways to manage that? Because it's interesting how systemic this is for you. Like it's not just an intestinal, like a gastrointestinal issue, obviously, because you've gotten the, this issue with the antibiotics and that's affecting your, your breathing and stuff. So it's fascinating to me. Like this affects every body system, you know, and, and how you're finding ways to make it work is really fascinating. And, and I know everyone's different, but I'm wondering if you found ways to sort of work through the rough patches. Yeah, I think, I think part of it is that I've never, and this is, you know, not something that I want people to feel sad about, but I never have really remembered life without ulcerative colitis. And so just growing up with it and always having it and me coming out of my big flare up and realizing that I really don't want this to 
be a barrier in me wanting to do what I really want to do is the biggest thing. And I know that sounds really cliche, but I think it's really, really important to be able to not compare yourself to people who are able-bodied, but to really just recognize that if you always account for your illness as as something that's stopping you, you're never really going to be able to do what you actually want to do. And you don't have to do it at like a hyper incredible level. Like you don't have to be a, uh, the best rock climber in the world. You just have to go do it and just try, um, as much as you can. And I think just taking that first step, not waiting for tomorrow, not waiting for next week is the biggest thing. And also just, um, I guess like just planning out your day and, and, and accounting for, or just realizing that, sometimes you might just not be able to do everything that you thought you'd be able to, to do. Yeah. So in terms of identity, does that mean that you've always identified as disabled and has that affected the way you see yourself as well? Yeah. So it's a really interesting question for me actually, because I didn't recognize that I had a disability until um, my freshman year of college. So before that, I always felt like I have a chronic illness. It's cyclical. I guess that's like, counted somewhat um, but it was just you that was your normal right right it it felt very very normal and so I think I think recognizing that I'm part of the disability community has played a completely different role in terms of how I view advocacy now Mm. Um, because I think the chronic illness space until recently hasn't been as um, as vocal or as I guess prominent for me at least or at least for me for me to be able to find. And so I think that's been really interesting is, is actually being able to have like the disability community, but then find, you know, my more specific community within the chronic illness community. Absolutely. Well, let's get into your work. Tell us about Health Advocacy Summit and how that was born out of your experience. Yeah, definitely. So I, um, so I was a, so after I kind of came out of this severe period of illness, I was really kind of struggling, um, you know, both socially and just figuring out how to, you know, kind of live like, like a normal person would live because I had been sheltered for a few years during that critical developmental period Mm. from middle school to high school. And so um, I realized for, you know, adolescents and young adults who are going through um, severe illnesses or cyclical illnesses, that there's just not enough support and there's not enough you know, connections to resources. So if I did not have my mom, I would not have known about 504 plans because that's not something that my school openly um, talked about or had offered to me until they were about to expel me really for missing so much school. So um, I decided to just bring together, um, you know, young adults in Indiana um, in my during my freshman year of college because I just wanted to find a community and I really wanted an in-person community. So I brought together about 14 attendees in Indiana. And for the first, um, and so we just called it a summit. And for the first summit, we had um, vocational rehabilitation counselors talk about navigating the education system and navigating the workplace. So how to even go about initiating these um, really daunting conversations. And then we had a health lobbyist talk about um, how he's worked to eliminate step therapy or fail first in the state of Indiana, um, making it easier for our um, attendees and for our patient community to get access to the medications when they need them. Um, 
And then we also had uh, psychologists come in, open up a discussion about overcoming the emotional barriers of living mm-hmm. with um, an invisible condition. And that session was really interesting to me because I personally had never really addressed the uh, mental health aspect of chronic illness mm-hmm. until that session for the first time. And I noticed that for many of the attendees that came, so a lot of them were from rural communities and um, they had also never really been able to open up and talk about their, um, you know, anxiety and depression and isolation that came along with their disease um, until they were sitting in a room with other people talking about it. So it was really, really cool. And that's still one has been one of my favorite sessions. Um, and then we also had a testimonial speaker who has had multiple conditions. And she talked about how she has, how she's, how exactly she was able to navigate college um, and, you know, entering college and everything. So that was the first summit. And then we built a website and then we got inquiries from other places to build a summit. So we, um, expanded in 2018 to South Texas. So quite literally on the border between Mexico and Texas in the Rio Grande Valley. Um, so that was, so we, we host these summits annually once they're in, in that state. And so that summit has been really interesting because the cultural perceptions of chronic disease are very, very different than, let's say, Indiana um, or other locations that we're at. And then in 2018, we also expanded to um, North Carolina. And then in 2019, we expanded to uh, San Francisco, California. And in 2020, we'll be in six states. Um, so we've been growing, growing pretty fast. And what's really cool is that we're led entirely by young adults with chronic and rare illnesses. This episode is sponsored by Ember Labs, creators of the Ember Wave, the intelligent bracelet that helps control how you experience temperature. I'm heat sensitive, and this device has been a lifesaver. Using patented technology, it cools or warms the temperature-sensitive skin on your wrist, creating a natural response in your body and mind that helps you thermally adjust in minutes. It was selected by Time magazine as one of 2018's best inventions. For those of you with mounting medical costs to consider, the team at Ember offer a payment plan in partnership with a firm. And because you listen to an invisible pod, they are offering you $30 off. Go to emberlabs.com. That's E-M-B-R labs.com. Enter code invisible at checkout and experience personal thermal wellness on a whole new level with me. I think that's so wonderful. and and it's really exciting that you're growing so fast as well. And it's, it's interesting. You use the word invisible, obviously that's why we're talking today, you know, but that you're getting a bunch of young people in a room together, probably seeing people who are just like them um, with these invisible and chronic conditions. And it must be very inspiring for everyone to be in the room and to like, not only have community, but also get support. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I think it's, I think it's really um, amazing because if you were to see any, well, if you were to see most of the people on this, you know, just walking around, you wouldn't ever be able to connect with them at a level that you are at the summit because you just really can't tell what a lot of these, um, what a lot of the attendees are going through. And it's, it's been really amazing for me to just personally to be able to find that community, um, that's in Indiana and not have to go to California or like these bigger places to have that in-person support. Um, so, I mean, I'm really passionate about bringing the summit and bringing more support to rural communities just because Indiana obviously has a lot of very rural areas. So, um, that's been really, really important to me personally. Yeah. And you've been receiving grants as well to continue this work. Yeah. Yeah. So we've been very, very grateful, um, to the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation who have, who, um, 
supported us um, and are continuing to support us. And then we're also very grateful to the Helmsley Charitable Trust, um, which have which have also they that Helmsley Charitable Trust has been um, incredible in providing us support and um, connecting to us to other people that are working in the transition space as well. Yeah, that's really wonderful. So you're you're finding these larger organizations that are wanting to help you with what is essentially a grassroots movement that's growing and growing, right? And that's so promising for so many young people who are living with these kinds of illnesses. I'm wondering if there are any examples that came to light in past summits um, or in your own experience um, of people who have been in situations where nobody believed that they were ill and they had to justify what was going on. I'm sure you've heard some really interesting stories. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's probably the toughest, um, toughest Mm. and the most frustrating aspect because so most of the, the attendees that come are women. um, And the stories that they tell in terms of how, how sick they had to get, before they were able to get the proper testing they needed or before they were able to um, get access to the medications that they needed when they needed them um, has been really, really enlightening, I think, for me personally. And it shows Mm. me how much um, effort and how much work there is still for us as um, people with invisible chronic illnesses to have to advocate and, and share you know, our, our journeys and our, in our um, disease experiences, because I, and I, I truly believe that especially young women, um, you know, don't get believed as much because they don't have enough maybe experience and, um, and, and whatever, you know, sure. that these types of situations. I'm wondering in terms of, you mentioned that it's mainly women who come to the summits. Do you think that's because there are more women who are sick or because women are seeking community more? Um, you know, I think, I think it's a little bit of both. Um, yeah, no worries. I think it's a little bit of both. I think that, um, I think men in general may tend to not want to openly discuss their illness as much. We've had some more in the past come and that's been really encouraging, but I think, um, I think it might just be that women tend to be a little bit more okay with sharing about their chronic illness and being vulnerable. Um, But I also feel like there's a stronger sense of urgency in terms of advocacy and self-advocacy because I mean, there's lots of, you know, articles and whatnot about women not being believed as much um, with their, with their illness. So I think for, for them and for, I mean, for us, I guess it's, it's really important and really there is a sense of urgency in, the need for learning advocacy skills and for having this peer support community. Absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more. And I'm so glad that, you know, that people are picking up on this disparity in care, right? Um, right. And, and trying to address the gaps, which it sounds like you guys are doing by providing advice and information and education to people who are coming to the summits. Right. Yeah. That's really wonderful. So what have you learned about the health system and actually not just the health system, but, you know, systems like our school systems and, um, you know, areas in which you've, you've moved and, um, have had to find your way through the advocacy platforms available to you. In what way have these structures and institutions worked? And in what ways are you finding that there are gaps that need to be filled? 
Yeah, definitely. I think the one that comes to my mind um, most quickly is about um, the lack of proper transition from pediatric to adult care. Mm. So a lot of young adults, and this is a topic that's kind of coming up more because more young adults are, you know, living longer with our chronic illnesses because for a long time we weren't technically supposed to live um, as long when we were diagnosed so young. So now our health system is confused as to how to properly um, move our population from pediatric to adult care. And so um, I think the biggest thing is when we're handed off from our um, pediatric GI doctor for our pediatric pulmonologist, we're not properly transferred to adult care. And that can pose a lot of issues in terms of continuity of care um, and just not really knowing your place within the healthcare system and just getting lost. Um, so for example, in Canada, um, there's kind of a hard cutoff of when you turn 18, you have to be sent to an adult um, hospital. Whereas in the U.S., it's a little bit more murky in terms of um, what age we transition and what age we start um, becoming more independent with our own care. So, you know, when I was, since I was six years old, I never dealt with insurance um, stuff at all. I never really um, was my own advocate at that young age. But um, as I went to college and I turned 18, I had to do the insurance um, calls by myself and I had to start, you know, filling my prescriptions, which I had no idea how to do until I came to college because I had never done that before. And so I think just this, this idea that, you know, doctors, social workers, the whole care team needs to prepare young adults um, for the proper transition and transfer, transfer it to um, the adult healthcare system and ensure that there is this continuity so that young adults don't just fall off at a certain age. Um, because then, you know, there's so much happening in our lives. We're going to college, we're starting a new job, we're moving here and there. And um, if we don't have that proper transfer, then there can be a huge um, gap in terms of, of proper care. Yeah, I think that's a really well-made point because it's not something that we're talking about a lot. And as issues of... Uh, you know, bias and um, systemic, systemic bias really are coming to light. It's a really excellent point to be made that, that we're forgetting also about some of these very important patient populations in the mix. And it's, it's important to keep that conversation alive, not just the conversation perhaps about women needing, uh, you know, more access to targeted care and diagnoses and treatment, et cetera, but also, you know, that, that there are, are these patients, as you say, who are in that weird limbo phase, um, who might need extra assistance and, and might need the education to learn how to become their own advocates and how to fill out those forms. I mean, it's a, it's a very interesting because I'm, I'm in my thirties and I have conversations with my friends about how we wish there'd been a college course about how to just do yeah. your taxes, you know, really basic <laughs> life skills right. that nobody really teaches you. You have to learn it on your own, but it's an extra hurdle when you're someone who has to fill out disability forms or ask for accommodations and, you know, navigate the healthcare system as someone who's a frequent user as well. Right. Right. And I think the other thing is too, is that, um, right now when in adolescence and, and, you know, early young adulthood, our brains are going through so much change too. So sometimes we not, we might not be able to make the proper decisions for, um, you know, certain things. So we have a lot of neurobiological changes that are happening. And if we aren't taken care of, 
we're not going to necessarily be the ones to be like, I need to make this appointment right now because our responsibility and our just understanding might not be, you know, where it is with an adult. So I think that's another thing that needs to be accounted for is that our brains aren't fully developed. And so um, we can't just expect young adults and adolescents to automatically, you know, make these appointments and we can't just put the onus on, on them all at once. Right. And that if the healthcare system is going to make us jump through hoops, they have to also give us instructions <laughs> right, right, and access. Absolutely. Access is huge, huge. Yeah. We, um, at health advocacy summit, we don't, um, we don't accept money from the industry mainly because, um, most of the attendees that come have had some form of issue with access, including myself. Mm-hmm. Um, and so until we can't get the basic, you know, medications we need when we need them, we just, can't work with the with the industry so yeah absolutely well and you had mentioned that you went through you were about to fail out of school and it wasn't until you were going to fail out that yeah yeah you had to do something about that and that the system was rigged against you and that's the educational system being rigged against you really right right yeah and and I should say so I I I never really I think so my my school system did provide really good support in terms of like tutors after I got the 504 plan. But until then, I was just missing so much that they had never kind of questioned um, anything about it. But yeah, and I will say one small plug too, and I'm, I'm very, I'm not really sure how I did this until now, but I was able to graduate still in the top 20 of my class of like 600 people in high school too. So that's amazing. That's a huge achievement. And it's, it's no surprise because you're obviously someone who is out there achieving things because <laughs> you not only graduated high school, but you also started an advocacy platform that's helping hundreds and hundreds of people. So, you know, that's, that's no small feat to be done while you're in high school. So what about the role of privilege? This is a question I like to ask everyone because, um, you know, we know that there are disparities in the system. There's medical bias at play. Um, and I'm wondering if privilege has played a role at all in your experience in the medical system, whether that's, you know, as someone who identifies as female, as a woman of color, how has that affected your experience? Yeah. So I think, so there's kind of two sides to this. I think the first is that I have been really lucky because both my parents are very health literate. So they were able to guide me through the health healthcare system, and I didn't have to figure um, things out organically by myself. Um, but on the other side of it, I think you know, being a woman, I feel like I had to be become really, really sick until there was action taken um, for like my symptoms. So just to give you an example, last or two years ago. I guess last year, um, I I had I was starting to have symptoms again of pouchitis, but um, and and I had visited my doctor, but it wasn't until a few months later when I said I really, really, really need to be checked out again, um, and like these symptoms cannot be dismissed anymore. Um, is when they ordered a pouchoscopy, and I got, um, you know, I got a score of six out of six on inflammation level. So I had really, really bad inflammation. And it wasn't until I like really, really pushed them into saying that something needs to be done because my lifestyle is now incredibly affected. It's not just mildly affected, it's incredibly affected that I was able to initiate that care. Um, And so, you know, I I can't say for sure whether that's because I'm a woman, but I feel or identify as a woman, but I feel like, um, you know, it, it definitely probably had a part in it. 
And I, I see those stories a lot with, you know, the, the people that, the young adults that I work with. So. Well, and I imagine that there possibly could have been an age bias at play mm-hmm. there too, right? You know, like yeah. we're not just talking like, here's a woman, but it's a young woman too. Right, right. Yeah, no, and I mean, especially also um, sort of leading health advocacy summit as a young woman has also posed its own challenges as well. But Interesting. I think, yeah, but I think that, um, I just think that there needs to be a lot of work in general done with um, advocacy for young women. Um, but especially with patient advocacy for young women too, that's just a whole nother area yeah. that needs to be tapped into more. So it, I'm really glad you say that because it's, it's interesting to me how inclusive the disability community is in ways that many other communities may not necessarily be for a lot of people. And the idea that like people in the disability community aren't just thinking about themselves, they're actually thinking about the bigger picture too, is a really important point to be made, I think. Right, right. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. So I like to round up uh, my interviews with some top three lists. And I'm wondering if you've got some top three tips. You already sort of went into a couple of tips that you were mentioning for people who maybe think something might be up with their bodies or maybe live with chronic illness and don't know how to navigate the system. What would you recommend to your fellow Spoonies, top three tips to, to make it work? Yeah, so I'd say the first is have some set time just for yourself. So that can be, um, for me, that's climbing. But for you, that can just be like listening to music, reading a book, and just not letting anyone else interfere with that time. So you can just do like one one hour every other day or one hour every couple of days, depending on your schedule and your needs. But I think that's really, really important to just have that time for self-reflection and just to kind of get your life in order because I know many people with chronic illnesses have a billion other things that they have to do. Um, I think that's the first tip is just have that time for yourself. I think the second tip is, um, you know, share your story. I think that's really awesome, but I think it's also really great to be able to empower others to share their story. And I think that's really fulfilling as well. Um, so I guess that's more of a macro tip, but just find other people and, and if you have had the opportunity to share your story, um, I think it's incredible to be able to lift other people up and, and promote their platforms as well, because um, it is very therapeutic to be able to share your experiences with others. And um, yeah, just, yeah, that's a, that's one of the tips. Um, and then I think the third one is, is probably for me, what's been really helpful is just expressing gratitude for the people around me. Um, and so I think sometimes, you know, when you're caught up in, oh, like my mom should have done this, or, you know, I feel like I've been discounted in this situation because of my chronic illness. I think if you turn that around into something a little bit more positive, then yeah, you might still have been discounted, but, um, you're still kind of trying to see the positive in a particular situation. So for example, with me, um, you know, I've had unfair exam settings where, you know, my professor has not accommodated me in the right way. And instead of just getting really frustrated in the moment, I kind of just took a step back and, um, you know, just kind of evaluated what I do have to be grateful for. And then afterward, I kind of spoke up. So just don't become charged in the moment, I guess, is, is one of the one of the tips, because unfortunately, people just don't know your experiences. And, you know, they just don't, I guess, recognize um, the importance of a lot of a lot of the accommodations and whatnot that are necessary, but just being able to explain and and be very, I guess, diplomatic and conscious of how you're 
um, you know, relaying your message is also something. I think that's really remarkable that you bring that up because in terms of what we've been discussing about, you know, this very important patient population that you're really targeting with your work of, of patients who are going from pediatric to adult care, you know, it's a great life lesson that you learn about not being reactionary, but it's very important, obviously, for getting your message across, particularly when you're a patient, particularly when you're in a population that is in some way perhaps underserved, right? So to really find a way to create your messaging in a way that it's palatable for other people. And this is an interesting an interesting point for people who are able-bodied to understand as well, that, that when they're hearing from patients, sometimes it's after they've thought it through. And that's either why they're so mature or it's why they're upset at this point, because imagine how much more upset they would have been if they just reacted off the bat. Right, right. And I think, you know, it's the thing too, it's that there's going to be so many instances, unfortunately, where people are just not going to understand. And to, to not get frustrated immediately is, is something that I think I've had, I have to tell myself every single time, because there's going to be so many of these instances, but it's also a really great learning lesson for the person. And, um, you know, hopefully, you're able to get your message across in a way that people are able to really understand where you're coming from, and then, you know, react in, in the appropriate way. So. Absolutely. So one last top three list. I'm wondering if you have any lifestyle changes that you've accommodated in your, in your lifestyle, just to make things work around your illness that you maybe sometimes top three, like cheat on or, um, maybe our guilty pleasures, secret indulgences, or even like a comfort activity when you have a flare up, just something that you're completely unwilling to compromise on, um, despite or because of your illness? Yeah. So I think that's a really interesting one because, um, so I used to cheat, I'll be honest, all the time on not taking medications when I was younger. Um, I think that, you know, that was when I actually had to take, take real pills. Um, but now I I take infusions, so it's a little bit harder for to, to cheat on in that, um, arena. But I think one of the big things for me is that um, when I when I am really sick and when I feel kind of overwhelmed, because when I'm a little bit sicker, I tend to not respond to people as fast or at all sometimes. Um, so I just like sometimes will just completely just get away from my computer and be like, I was on vacation or something when I was really not on vacation, was re- really just taking a few days um, just to like walk around and everything. Um, and so I think that's one of the big things is that I just kind of tend to put people away for a while and just focus on myself and focus on my time. Um, without fully other- isolating, it sounds like, you yeah, know, like you give yeah. yourself the time you need, but it doesn't mean that you're like cutting yourself off from people entirely. Right. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. So I think that's, mm-hmm. that's one of the things. And the other thing is definitely climbing for me. Um, that's something that, you know, might not always be the best thing when I've only gotten like a few hours of sleep or a couple hours of sleep. Um, it, it might be better to actually just relax and rest my body. But I feel like for me, um, that's, that's such a huge part of my life. So I'm definitely not willing to compromise um, on, on climbing. And I think the other thing is to um, probably the third thing, and this is a, probably a little bit harder and I think it's probably hard for most people is cutting back on sugar um but I tend to like especially when I'm in a flare just not feeling well I tend to eat a lot of sugar and sugar is inflammatory so it's probably not the best thing but um 
but yeah. But it's comforting. Yeah, it's very comforting. (laughs) Absolutely. Well, Sneha, can you tell everyone where they can find Health Advocacy Summit and your work? Yes. So you can visit www.healthadvocacysummit.org. And we're on all social media as well. Um, So you can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Fantastic. Is there anything else you'd like to add uh, for everyone tuning in? So with Health Advocacy Summit, we focused very much on the summit. So we have six summits, but we also now have year-long programming. So um, one of the programs that we do um, is called the Crohn's and Clytus Young Adults Network. And so um, we facilitate an international fellowship program for young adults with specifically inflammatory bowel disease. Um, And so we give them the opportunity to um, kind of have this peer support network, um, which is all kind of virtual. And then they also have monthly training. So they hear from, um, you know, policy experts, social media experts, um, people who focus on nutrition, IBD and researchers. Um, So they have those monthly kind of advocacy training calls. And then they publish monthly content for our website. And then this year, with the support of the Helmsley Charitable Trust, we're able to fly them all to Digestive Disease Week um, in early May in Chicago, which is really cool. Mm. And we have fellows from the UK, India, and all across the US this year. This is our second year of the program. Um, And it's been really um, just incredible seeing it grow and seeing the interest in actually training the next generation of patients and the next generation of patient advocates. That's really exciting, Sneha. I congratulate you on on doing all of this. It's just amazing the work you're doing while you're still at college. <laughs> yeah, definitely. No, and, and I think that's one thing that's also really important to add is that I have a really, really incredible team that I work with. Yeah. And it sounds like, you know, this is a, a network that's, it's not just for these young adults, but it's also, you know, parents who have children who are, you know, um, living with chronic illness. So it really touches so many individuals. Um, And I I wish you the best of luck as you continue to grow the organization. It's really exciting the work you're doing. Yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah. It's been a pleasure having you on. Yeah. Thank you. That's it, folks. Thanks for listening. As always, please check us out online at uninvisiblepod.com and all over the social media world at uninvisiblepod. We love your feedback and suggestions, so please drop us a line via the website if you have questions, ideas for topics to cover in future episodes, or just want to say hello. We're all about relationships and collaboration here, so credit where credit is due. Music for this episode is by Sean Hart, who can be found at seanhart.com. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts.